how old were you exploring drugs, alcohol? I was 15 years old, was my first love. The person that I was when I was under the influence was the person I wanted to be all the time. Like, where were you getting the money for all the booze and the drugs mm. and everything? I stole. One of the things that I'm most ashamed of that sticks out, I took medication from my mother, was undergoing cancer treatment. All right, all right, all right. We're gonna get to all of that in just a moment. But first, I want you to know how grateful I am for today's podcast sponsor, my friends at FitAF Nutrition. They are Eastern Pennsylvania's leading meal prep company. FitAF offers meals of multiple sizes for people with various health goals. And you know what I love about this company? They use high quality ingredients like grass-fed meats, wild fish, and locally harvested produce. And all right, for you parents on the go, they even offer family meals. Go to fitafnutrition.com, place your order by Thursday at midnight, and get fresh prepared meals delivered right to your door on Sunday. Use code LECKY at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Here we go, buddy. It's the Ryan Leckie Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Great to have you on another episode of the Ryan Leckie Show. With me on the couch, the one and only Pat McDonough. He is a mental health therapist who specializes in addiction. We have a lot to unpack today. We do. Ryan, Are you ready for this? Thanks for having me. I think so. I All think. right. And we want to point out you have your master's in social work. And how long have you been in this field? Eight years. Eight years. And yeah. you have an incredible story yourself about addiction. And I want people to know as well, before we even begin, right, because we are going to talk about sort of this sober movement underway. A lot of people go, you know, dry January, which happens throughout the year for some people. This isn't a podcast to be like, never pick up a glass of wine. So, like, right, we don't yeah, want to kind of think this is like a podcast preaching, but I think shining a light on sort of the movement happening with a lot of people, sobriety, mocktails, everything else, and then some. But I want to get into sort of your life so people can kind of hear your backstory, what led you to become a licensed social worker that you said, I'm really going to focus on addiction and mental health. Yeah, so it was actually, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like, no clue. Growing up um, and friends starting to say in high school and early college, you know, I want to be a, a lawyer or I want to, you know, work um, in construction, or labor, I want to go into the medical field. Me, it was literally blank. And I actually realized that I wanted to work in this field while I was in a treatment center. Um, I had been to rehab four times by the age of 23 years old, and it started to feel natural to me. It started to feel or organic, just being in small groups, you know, talking about mental health, talking about um, stressors, um, you know, the type of things that make people tick, how people are impacted by uh, life experiences. And I thought this is something that I could do. Before we get to your journey of how you got sober mm -hmm. and everything, how old were you when you sort of started going down the rabbit hole of exploring drugs, alcohol, how did it all start? Because I want people to know before we're just like, here's a guy who's a mental health therapist and, you know, he doesn't get it, right? You do get it because you've been through the trenches, but how did it all begin? Yeah, and I would say that, you know, everybody has their own unique story, right? So I think one of the things that um, I take pride in is I don't pretend to get it, you know, get it fully, even if I've had experiences with addiction because I know that there are nuances for everybody, right? Whether 
how they grew up or, um, you know, just different life experiences they've had. But when I first had a buzz from alcohol, actually, was my first love. Um, I was 15 years old, and it was like, boom, this this wave, this, uh, you know, wave came over, sunlight, clouds opened. It was like, this is the feeling that I didn't know existed that I've wanted for my whole life. It was like every insecurity, um, every fear, every doubt, gone. Can't find it. At 15. 15, yeah. And I was able to somewhat, you know, be what we call like a weekend warrior throughout high school. You know, I didn't, I didn't take um, alcohol use beyond the weekends. You know, I wasn't drinking during the week. I was, uh, you know, getting up, going to school. But I had I had a pretty structured life. You know, I had a family that was very involved in my life. So had I been in different circumstances, I think it actually would have escalated a lot sooner than it did. Um, but I was lucky to be in a good community and a good family. However, I still faced consequences. I think I was arrested or um, picked up by the cops maybe four times in high school. Um, one thing that I did, which was like out of the norm for me, was I went out for a school play. I went out for the production of Les Miserables at Scranton Prep. And uh, I actually got kicked out of the play because I got arrested for drinking. And <clears throat> so the signs were there. And the other signs that were there was I was a blackout drinker which is one of the more common signs of someone who's a problem drinker is having blackouts. So um, age of 16, 17, I'm starting to blackout. My tolerance was already going up. You know, when I first started drinking, I, I would get um, drunk from maybe five light beers. And by the time I'm a senior in high school, it's 10. And then a freshman in college, it's 15 or 20. So it just continued to pile on. Um, and I started to explore with drugs after high school as well. So um, I loved it. I loved everything about it. Um, the person that I was when I was under the influence in the early days was the person I wanted to be all the time. Who was that person? Someone that, uh, you know, didn't have any anxiety. Somebody that um, believed in themselves and you know, felt like the, the life of the party. You know, a lot of this is cliche stuff that you hear, but, you know, they're cliches for a reason. Like, they're, they're real. It's really how you feel. And not everybody gets that impact from alcohol or other substances, right? Certain people do, and I'm one of those people. You know, I believe that I was born with um, this, this propensity for addiction, and it is in my family, and it's very genetic, which um, I'm sure we'll get into. But... Um, I, I just, I just felt confident, you know, and I didn't care what people thought. Um, and eventually that turned against me. You mentioned the drug started after high school. Mm -hmm. So here you're drinking, still getting the high you're looking for, but what were the drugs you started to explore with? And what happened when you started mixing everything together? Yeah. Yeah. And the question might be what weren't the drugs you started to explore with, right? So, um, <clears throat> Cocaine was a big one, um, and the thing with cocaine is it's a stimulant, so, you know, you use coke and you can stay up for hours and hours, and I used to refer to it as the equalizer. You know, it leveled out my drinking, so, you know, if you drink a lot and you start to become more impaired and, you know, you could, it's a sedative, so you start to become 
drowsier with time and you know lose your inhibition cocaine would start to level that out where you felt like you know you were more sharp put together you can continue to drink so you know there were plenty of nights i was at i was at temple my sophomore year of college and my lifestyle was essentially wake up anywhere between noon and 4 p.m and i would just party all night i would drink um you know i was using not i wasn't using cocaine every night at that point but a couple nights a week i was smoking a lot of pot um i got into xanax benzodiazepine anti-anxiety medication very strong um and eventually it led into other pills opiates um i had a a fling with for a while i would say um and at the time you say you're going to temple university well um are you that didn't last very long because i was gonna say are you are you going to class if you're (laughs) waking up at noon four i should add no i've and i i counted at one point i think i went to a total of seven classes that semester and here's the thing like going to temple was um i didn't get in there out of high school because you know high school i I believe I was capable, but I slacked a lot. You know, that this was one of those subtle impacts of my drinking that I didn't I didn't know and I couldn't articulate at the time, you know, in my teenage years was I had very little motivation in other aspects of my life. I had very little discipline and um, you know, because so much of my energy went towards partying, even though it was just on the weekends, like that was my source of fulfillment. That was my source of achievement. So it was like I kind of only cared about that. I got decent enough grades to get by and graduate high school, but I did not think about the future. I did not think about where I would want to be. So I did well enough my freshman year in college to transfer to Temple, which is where I wanted to go. I had this great apartment, and it was kind of look at it like, you know, this is a clean slate. You got this nice place. You're at the school that you want to be at. Here's your opportunity. You know, everything is in place for you. Now go live your life, you know, be, be a human being, be a civilized uh, young adult and study. And I completely crashed and burned. Um, and my parents had access to my grades online at that point. So they went in, they looked it up, and they saw that I just had literally zeros across the board. So they came down, and that was actually the first time that I went to an inpatient Drug and alcohol rehab center. While you're in high school, <clears throat> did your parents, anybody notice? Your, I know you have a close family. Mm-hmm. Did anyone notice, like, I think something's up? Yeah. Yeah, my dad did. Um, what did you do? Deflect? Absolutely. Yeah. Minimization, rationalization. Um, I would become almost, like, quietly defiant. Um, and that's a common that's a common reaction if anybody confronts uh, a substance use disorder, um, because it's like you know you heard the way I described it before. I loved it so much. It was like it made me this person that I wanted to be, that I felt that I had to be. So like I I did a lot to protect that um, until it completely took control of me. But um, yeah, I, I was just in I was in denial. But my dad grew up, um, his father was an alcoholic, and his father ended up getting sober for many years, my grandfather. 
Um, so my dad was very much aware of alcoholism in our family. He was aware of some of the signs, you know, like how someone, uh, how their life may unfold as a heavy drinker. So he just, he saw the signs early and he would make comments to me about it. I remember, I think I was like 18 years old. I remember Googling, uh, signs of alcoholism and, um, I just remember seeing like five things that applied to me and sorry, right, I'm going to close that. No, thanks. So I just didn't want to look at it. For people who are unfamiliar about alcoholism, is it genetic? Is it a disease? How would you describe it? Yeah. So it was actually classified as a disease in 1956 by the American Medical Association. Um, <clears throat> basically there's, there's a lot of criteria, but it sometimes sometimes i think it's even hard to like go by the book because it could also be used as a means to rationalize why someone isn't a problem drinker right like the way that we historically look at it is job loss dui um relationship loss and the reality is there's there's a lot of functional um heavy drinking that goes on and there's a lot of binge drinking but the main thing when it comes to having a problem with alcohol is continued use despite negative consequences, right? So like take me, for example, I fail out of college clearly because of alcohol or that clearly played a large role in it. I continue to use alcohol problem. For people who hear all of this, right? I think there might be a stereotype or misconception. Like, here's a kid who maybe grew up in a wealthy family in Scranton. Like, where were you getting the money for all the booze and the drugs mm. and everything? And, and and were there ever conversations, I mean, even with your own family, where they're like, man, we gave you too long of a leash? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so where did it come from? Did you have a job? Like, I always think people often bring that up. Like, how do people afford it? Because drugs aren't cheap right yeah yeah it's interesting you're asking me that because i've had this conversation a lot and a lot of people don't ask and i did i stole i stole credit cards from my family um i guess that was a little bit well i started going to bars when i was like 18 19 years old with a fake id fake id yeah had multiple i've actually been caught with them a couple times i've been arrested for it um <clears throat> but i uh yeah so by the time i'm 18 i'm basically 18 and a half, 19, I'm basically going to bars for the majority of my drinking. And I would take, um, I had a credit card that had my name on it. That was taken away from me shortly after. Um, but I would actually start taking my parents' credit cards. Um, and I would work. I was working, uh, I was working for a catering company. Um, I was working, like, for the city at one point. Uh, so I would have various jobs, but Mainly, it it was, you know, funded by me taking from my family. And my parents would catch me. They would be furious. Um, they would try to take steps to prevent it. I would get around that. And I just kept doing it. At any point, though, did you ever have a light go off? This is what I'm always fascinated by, people who maybe struggle with certain addictions. I know you mentioned about opening up the website and looking at what alcoholism was, and then you're like, yeah. I'm going to close that. I mean, did you ever have moments throughout this journey before you said four stints in rehab mm -hmm. that you're like, you know what, I need to change. This really isn't good. I did. Yeah, for sure. A lot of those moments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mainly when I was under the influence. 
like it'd be say midnight and I have, you know, 13 drinks in me, then I'm willing to talk about it. Then I'm willing to say, I have a problem. I have to change, uh, you know, maybe tomorrow or, right. you know, maybe, uh, in a few months, you know, when I'm, when I'm 22, I'll do it. Right. I'm 21 right now. So, um, and that's the thing, like it would, <clears throat> when I was under the influence, it would create this illusion, you know, like everything's safe and you know, the truth, you'll take care of it when you have to, you know, you'll get your life together in other ways, starting tomorrow. And then tomorrow would come and I'm dealing with all those side effects from alcohol withdrawal. And, you know, it just wasn't an honest conversation. How bad did all this affect your health? Because, you know, you hear stories of people who wreck their liver. Yeah. How bad did it get with you with your own health? I was or did seeing... you finally get out of it maybe just before it all went really south? <clears throat> yeah. See, I, I think I would have had major, major health issues um, at a young age if I kept drinking the way that I was. I was basically drinking every night to a point of being drunk, if not blacked out. Um, by the time I'm 19 years old. Okay. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, I actually stopped drinking um, January of 2010, but I didn't get sober fully until 2011. So I stopped drinking um, shortly. It was about a month after my 22nd birthday. But I was seeing when I was... I was 19 or 20 years old, and I was seeing a psychiatrist. Um, and I remember he took my blood pressure. And I don't remember what the number was, but I remember him saying to me, you have to really start taking your health seriously. And, I mean, my physical health. So I knew I was overweight. Um, I was about 35 pounds heavier than I am right now. Uh, I went five years without working out at all, no exercise. I ate whatever I wanted, <clears throat> and obviously I was I was drinking to excess almost every night, um, and I. But as far as like blood pressure and you know your liver, I didn't know about any of that stuff at the time. And um, the psychiatrist said to me, "You don't want to die," and I said to him, "We're talking about death," and he said, "Yeah." You know, because my blood pressure was apparently that bad that, um, you know, I was he was that concerned about my physical condition. What <clears throat> happened in January of 2010? Because you said it was a year until you officially got sober mm -hmm. after that. What was the light bulb that you're like, OK, time to do something about the, this? The police, actually. I got pulled over. I got my second DUI. Um, I had my first DUI four months prior in September of 09. And <clears throat> I had already been in rehab once at that point. So I went from Temple University and then uh, I took a few months off of drinking and went back. And by 2009, 2010, early 2010, I mean, that was, that was the worst my drinking ever was. Um, and other drugs were involved, as I mentioned before. So at that point, it was like everything was, that was probably the most, uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was the most I was ever drinking. 
and I got a second DUI and I went back to rehab for the second time um, about five days after that. Second rehab stint. Second rehab stint. But it took four. Yes. Right? Yes. So I think the other question is a mental health therapist now, who I know you share your stories with patients, and as you really pointed out, sometimes you tell them, hey, I kind of get where you're coming from, but other times you try not to, like, say, hey, I totally get it. Right, right. What fails with rehabs <clears throat> that you would have to go four times? Because I think people often, you're not the first person. Sure. Yeah. Is it the rehab? Is it the person, like... Where's the disconnect? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's the rehab, though I would say that some are better than others. Um, but I really believe it's one of those things that, like, you get out of it what you put into it. So um, it might it might not be. It's not it's not a fair comparison, but like you think about, you know. You could go to um, a very low level, uh, very little equipment, uh, say gym, right? I could go to the greatest gym that exists with equipment and trainers, but what does it come down to? It comes down to what we put into it, right? What we're willing to take, um, how far we're willing to go, how honest we're willing to be with ourselves. And um, that's what it was for me. I, and I will say that I was highly motivated when I first went into treatment that second time, I was highly motivated. I felt like I was done. Some of it did stick. I didn't go back to drinking, right? I just wasn't ready to be fully sober. And, um, and what does not fully sober look like? So for me, um, I'm abstinent. I don't use any mood or mind altering substance. You know, I, I don't smoke pot and you know, I've just, that's my journey. Um, recovery has, I would say, uh, changed a lot over the years. Like when I first went to rehab, I remember uh, one of the nurses told me, because I was prescribed an antidepressant at the time, one of the nurses at the facility told me that that wasn't sober, which, you know, is preposterous in my opinion to say that being on an antidepressant isn't sober. Um, <clears throat> but that's how sort of like hardcore it was years ago was if you're not abstinent, then, you know, you're you're using and you're doing the wrong thing. And, and it was kind of a mentality like that. Um, but for me, I am abstinent. And at the time I had stopped drinking, but I started smoking pot again after six months. So I was six months completely sober. Um, six months in, I start using pot. Then I start taking Xanax. Did you think you could do it and just be like, just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of people, right? Absolutely. Let me just dip my toes in. I can handle it. I'm in control. Yeah, and Ryan, I tell you, this is the scary thing about addiction. Like, I, the things that I had told you about my story so far, kind of just scratching the surface, right? And I know I casually mentioned two DUIs and failing out of school, but like, you know, I'm not really getting into the day-to-day, -day. like, it was, it was bad. What was the dumbest thing you ever did? Dumbest thing. Oh, God. Probably, um, yeah, I, I don't know that I would say dumbest, but one of the things that I'm most ashamed of that sticks out is um, I took medication from my mother who was undergoing cancer treatment at the time. Wow. Yeah. 
I think what's crazy to hear about your story, we've known each other in northeastern Pennsylvania probably for about a decade from the gym scene. Yeah. But to hear sort of what rock bottom looked like for you mm-hmm. and where you've come, I think is really impressive. And I think it gives people a lot of hope. If you look at all of this, so it was 2011 when you officially got sober. 2011, yep. July 2011. How did your life change after that? I feel like I've lived three lives at this point. Um, I mean, no comparison. I uh, Because I wasn't functional in, in active addiction, right? So, um, and I wasn't honest, and I was all over the place mentally. You know, my my mood was rarely stable. Um, so I was just so unpredictable and chaotic. And, you know, that all, that all just kind of went away. Like you said before we went on here, you know, you mentioned the gym we went to. We had nicknames. And, you know, what was my nickname? Your nickname was Chill. Yeah, Everybody's chill. like, he's always chill. Chill. I was not always chill, though. I was not always chill. Um, and I... In case you're wondering, mine was Honey Badger, by the way. Yeah. Honey Badger. <laughs> honey Badger. But like you were chill. That's what they called yeah, you. Chill. Yeah. Because yeah. you were. were. I mean, there'd be crazy workouts, and we'd all be on, like, pre-workout, or you'd have a coffee before you come in, and we're like, yeah, I'm going to kill it, you know? And then Pat was like, okay, I got this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but... Uh, that wasn't it, always you. No. No, that was not always me. And, you know, part of my fear in getting sober was, like, I was afraid of who I was without substances. I was afraid of who I was at my core. And so um, there was there was an emotional side to it, and then there was sort of like a, um, a daily activity side to it, right? So I had to get, I had to figure out like where I was going with my life. And as I mentioned before, it was my last time in treatment that I decided that, hey, I might really wanna pursue um, working in this field. Now, like a part of me thought I could do that. And there was another part of me that was like, what are you insane? You just were at your fourth facility in four years. You're 23 years old. You're sober for a couple weeks. But, um, that was what I set out to do. It what do you think took the fourth time where you finally got sober? It's weird. It's weird because there was a lot of things that happened leading up to that that day um, that I really snapped. And there was an intervention that my family had that I actually didn't remember. Someone mentioned it about a year afterwards, and I said, what are you talking about? I was so inebriated on uh, prescription medication pills that uh, I did not remember this intervention even happening. And um, I had lost a relationship, um, you know, one that I really didn't think I was going to lose. And I had friends that I partied with that, like, stopped taking my calls. Like, I remember going to this apartment that we all used to hang out at. And I'm see- I saw everybody's cars. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're there. Let me go in. And I knock on the door. This was after they hadn't been answering my calls. And nobody comes to the door. Door's locked. And that was a moment for me of like my friends that some of them engage in some of the same things that I do, maybe not to my extent, but they don't want to hang out with me anymore. Right. Cause you're not party Pat. Well, right? no, no, no. Okay. I, this is, I was at the time. Okay. I was okay. at the time. 
But it was that extreme. <clears throat> it was that extreme. Yeah. Yeah. It was Got just it. that ridiculous. Um, so there were moments like that, you know, I, I think in this journey for everybody, there's a lot of seeds that get planted along the way, right? Like we always look for that aha moment, but really there's, there's a lot of little ones that happened along the way for me. And so I woke up one morning after a really bad weekend where I got sick and I was in withdrawal and, um, I had, I ended up just sleeping, you know, once I was over like the, the bad sickness, I ended up sleeping for about basically 36 hours and I woke up on a Monday morning and it was just like, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be going to work right now. I'm supposed to be, you know, I should be enjoying the, the sun, the outdoors. And I was just so drained and so depressed um, and scared. Uh, People who go down that road, sometimes it leads to suicide. Did you ever have those thoughts? I wouldn't say active. I would say more passive where I would go to, I would go to bed at night, like knowing I was going to pass out. Um, and I was intoxicated and I would think like, I don't care if I wake up or, you know, I'd like to just sleep for two weeks or something. I just want to wake up in two weeks and I want everything to be completely different. So, you know, never a plan, um, nothing consistent, but I had plenty of nights where I'd go to sleep thinking that way. But, um, <clears throat> So basically all those, all those seeds, you know, losing relationships, people not wanting to hang out with me, um, physically it's starting to take more of a toll. And, uh, it just so happened that that day that I woke up and I kind of was already thinking like, I got, I got to stop. I have to be done. Um, my father confronted me. There was something, I don't even know what had happened, but, um, he, he confronted me about my recent behavior, and uh, I, I literally put my hands up. I started crying, and I said, I'm, I'm done. I, and he kind of looked at me like half shocked, half pissed. I think he wanted to believe me, but, you know, who could believe me at that point? I, I lied so much. Um, <clears throat> so you eventually, I mean, if you fast forward, you go to the fourth stint rehab. Mm-hmm. It takes because you were ready to do the work. I was ready. And I was. You did say when you were kind of coming out of it, you're thinking I should go into this field, right? Yes. When did you eventually say? Because you were even questioning that, saying, "Hey, I'm going to be a mental health therapist, right? You know, yeah. currently you're a licensed social worker." Yeah. So what was the aha moment that said, "I could do this and I can help people"? Well, I started to the aha moment small group small group in my last treatment center, psychotherapy group. Um, and actually one of the counselors there uh, had asked me after one of the groups, he pulled me aside and he said, do you, did you graduate college? I said, no. <laughs> I said, I have about 50 credits, which is what I had at the time, um, but I want to go back. And he said, you know, you have, you have a great understanding of addiction. I said, well, yeah, I've been in rehab you know, for four times in the last, this is my fourth and the last couple of years here. So like that was my, 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 my story and other people's stories and treatment centers, like that was my education. And, you know, then I went and got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree eventually, but that was my foundational education for this. And 
Um, so that conversation with that counselor, I'll never forget it. It did a lot to kind of um, boost my confidence because it's like it's not only me that sees something. Someone else sees that I might have potential in this field. Um, but it was a slow process. When I got out of treatment, you know, I couldn't go right into working there. I had to, you know, be sober for a while and I had to get some education. So, and I didn't even go right back to school. Um, I worked. I worked for um, about a year and a half, I want to say. And then when I went back to school, I did it slowly. I did two credits, or I'm sorry, two classes, six credits the first semester. Then I did six again. Then I did like nine over a summer. And it was that fourth semester that I took a, a full schedule. And um, about six months after graduating, I went into graduate school <clears throat> while working. I got a job at an inpatient treatment center, the same one that I went to. I got a job as a primary counselor after getting my bachelor's. Um, and then I started graduate school part-time. You didn't, you didn't hold back at all sharing your story here. When you shared it with people going through rehab, is there, a, do you think, a better connection with people and more relatability where they're like, okay, I feel like this guy gets me? And you're using, you're sort of making your mess your message. Right. Yeah. Mess your message. I like that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it helps people a lot. Um, because one of the, one of the biggest struggles with addiction is the stigma, right? Is this fear of judgment, this, um, fear that other people don't get it. Um, a frustration comes with that as well, where like, I'm going through this, you know, psychological torture, physical torture, and nobody else knows what's this like, what this is like. Um, so yeah, I would say that it helps a lot. And it's something that you hear people say a lot. I think, I think it could be at times actually a little bit unfair to some of the professionals that don't have that lived addiction experience. Um, because there are incredible professionals out there that don't have lived addiction experience that are great providers for people with substance use disorder. Um, but no doubt there's, there's that opportunity for a little bit more of a connection and a little bit more comfort um, in the therapeutic process with my story. And when we think you mention addiction, right? So when we kind of pull back the curtain on that, are there certain statistics that qualify like this is a problem, right? Because I think a lot of people might say, you know, I don't know, I only, I, I drink twice a month, but when I drink, it's four bottles of wine at a time, right? right? Yeah. So what's the boundary? I mean, if people, I guess, when do people know if they have an issue or something that maybe this is more than just a casual drink? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, to try to put it kind of plainly, first thing I would say is intoxication, right? Like if you're getting... If you're getting intoxicated, if you're, you know, speech is slurred or even you're acting significantly different than you normally might, you know, whether that's like getting louder, uh, passing out, um, you know, saying things you wouldn't normally say, uh, that is criteria. If you're having withdrawal symptoms, right, if you're having bad hangovers, if you're having significant amounts of anxiety, depression the next day, if you have a little tremor, um, you know, highly dehydrated like the more you withdraw the more likely you are to have a problem 
um, I mentioned earlier, continued use despite negative consequences, right? So something bad happens on Saturday, but the next weekend you're out doing the same thing. Then, you know, that's the, that inability to look at that and to uh, dial back or stop is a sign of a problem. Um, <clears throat> social impairment, occupational impairment, you know, issues with relationships, issues with the jobs, um, tolerance, tolerance. So one of the things I had said earlier was I, I would get, um, I would get drunk five light beers like early on. I remember you I said high school started. and then college high it was school. 10 and yeah. 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 And really, you know, if I'm being honest, it was probably, you know, it got to be more than 10, uh, into college, but yeah, if, if someone is drinking more than they used to drink, trying to get that desired effect, then, you know, that, that could be a sign of an issue. And I think even if people don't hit that point, there's been a lot of discussion. I mean, social media, especially every time January rolls around and no matter when you're listening to this, there's a big movement in yes. January yes. every year, no matter what it is. And it's 2024 when we're recording this dry January. Mm -hmm. And there's also some research and discussion out there that maybe Gen Z, right? They're exploring more of the sober movement and the sober curious and unpack. Why do you think dry January is becoming a thing? And is it worth doing for people? I mean, if you're, is, is that the step to take if you're going to cut alcohol out completely or is it helping people cut back? Cause I'm sure people have brought it up to you as a mental health therapist. Yeah. Um, it's big. And I know people, you know, in my personal life that are doing it this year, uh, and I started to hear more about it last year. Mm -hmm. um, I think people should, like to me, I say, why not? But uh, it's interesting what you said about Gen Z and millennials as well, actually. And what I would say is, you know, I think that there are a lot of um, potential downfalls of this, this era that we're in right now, the digital age, the social media, cell phones, technology, the amount of information that we have at our disposal, I think can be overwhelming. I think it leads to a lot of comparison and, um, you know, there's just so much information. And, you know, one of the questions you hear nowadays is, can we as people, are we really ready to handle this amount of inf information, this amount of technology? But one of the great things about it is you find things out and you can gain awareness easily right like I had mentioned that when I was um, what 20 years old and I wasn't really aware of some of the health impacts of alcohol now I did have access to the internet the internet you know 16 years ago wasn't anywhere near what it is now as you know and now it's like you open Instagram and even if you, you know, have typed alcohol at some point, looked anything up, like there's a chance you're going to see some content about negative effects of alcohol. And there are now, like I remember five years ago, people saying to me, like, is there resources you can give me? Like, is, are, there, are there podcasts you can give me? Even two years ago, podcasts people are asking for. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there are any podcasts, but now I do. There's tons of podcasts where people are talking about these things. Sober movements, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Do you do you believe though? I mean, a lot of people who try dry January, right? 
for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. It's, I think they realize how much, if you just take, let's take one, maybe, I guess, drug, you would say alcohol, right? Yeah. Take one into the mix. It's everywhere, right? So people who try to attempt dry January, think about it. It's at weddings, bridal showers, house parties, restaurants, right? Yeah. And I don't want people to think <clears throat> we're poo-poo-pooing on anybody who maybe has a drink when they're out or whatever. Right. But I think that's where people realize, like, wow, this was tougher than I thought. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then dry January, we talked about right before we sat down, I knew somebody doing damp January. And I'm like, damp January? (laughs) You're still drinking. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and damp apparently is like you, you know, the the vow is to drink less than you normally would or to not drink for part of January. Right. So, yeah. Like somebody told me that. I'm like, um, you're still drinking. It's not dry January. Yeah. And in yeah. the in the, the sober curious movement. Well, what is this? Yeah. Well, it's basically that um, you know, just what it says. People are people are more curious about the effects of not having alcohol in their system now than they ever were before. People are talking about the negative impacts of alcohol on the brain and body like they never were before. People are sick of being hungover. People are sick of, you know, not feeling like fully themselves again until Tuesday or Wednesday if they went out on Saturday, right? There's these lingering effects where, um, you know, you're, there's an impact on energy levels. There's an impact on sleep. There's an impact on weight, impact on skin. All of these, you know, potentially negative effects for so many people that, it's like, why, why am I doing this again? I think a lot of people are asking themselves. But to your point before, it is so immersed and so ingrained in our culture, you know, particularly like I'll just I'll speak for Northeast Pennsylvania, which I think is one of the biggest um, binge drinking areas in the state. I think Scranton was seen as um, in one report a few years back, but um, funerals, weddings, uh, you know, meeting with a friend, right? Like going out to dinner. It Especially is, when people are always like, hey, let's go out for a drink. I feel like I'm a 90-year-old man, so most of the time I'm like, how about I meet you for coffee at like 7 a.m.? Yeah, Just because right. I want to go to bed. Yeah. That's really, it. Yeah, your bedtime's like 5, right? Yeah, now it's like 7.30. You know, my team Ooh. knows like after 7, like I'm cooked. Mm-hmm. But I think coming back to what you said, social media, right? Looking at more, I want to say fit fluencers and these people into yeah. fitness and health and wellness. And I started going down the rabbit hole and one of my good friends, I mean, she's a neurologist and a sleep expert and talking about alcohol's effects on your sleep. And I wasn't a big drinker like twice a month, but I have a triple A personality that if I'm drinking, even if it was with people in my neighborhood, right? Like I didn't want one, I wanted a few glasses of wine. And then sure. a few glasses of wine turn into you know, multiple large pizzas, ice cream, and then you're back at the gym. And then it almost developed into like exercise anorexia, right? Where you're like, oh my gosh, you start, I got to go back and work all this off. Right. And I started looking at more of the sober, curious movement and people doing dry January. I'm like, you know what? Like I wasn't a big drinker, right? Twice a month here and there. I was like, I'm going to do it. And after 70 plus days, a lot of the stuff you said, cognitively I'm better my sleep is better mm-hmm. my partner Matt and I just went on a cruise and everyone's like how's the drinks and I'm like I'm hitting club and diet soda like every day it was great yeah because coming back to I think what people even say now as they get older like oh I don't recover like I used to 
you're right. Like you have one wild night when you're in your forties on a Saturday, it's till Wednesday till you yeah. feel like yourself. Right. And Absolutely. I think I just got to the point where, you know, it wasn't that bad, but just being like, man, I want to get up at 5am on a Sunday and I want to go work out because for me, the mental health component of fitness, right. Absolutely. It's phenomenal. And yeah. I think coming back to what you said, you put on 35 pounds when you were boozing, right. When Actually you, more like, more like 50. Right, you're eating everything that's not nailed down, which I think happens to a lot of people when they do drink because your inhibitions are gone. And it's a like, part of it, inhibition yeah. gone. Even the day after, think about when you're hungover. Yes. All you want is the grease, yeah. the food. How has exercise, though, changed your life in recovery? Because yeah, I see you now, and yeah. obviously I know how passionate you are, and to see a guy and to listen to your story, even though I've known you for like a decade, and to hear where you've been and to see where you are is super inspiring because I also know not only are you a gym rat, right? But here's a guy running marathons for charity. I've seen you multiple times in the New York City Marathon. Yeah, yeah. What's the impact that has helped you to stay clean? <clears throat> Exercise. Huge. Absolutely huge. Um, I would say that the two, the two biggest components for me were uh, social and exercise. Social, you know, people that I met in AA, sober friends that I gained over the years. But exercise, um, you know, when I talked about my early days of drinking and wanting confidence and, you know, wanting, uh, a, something to cope with anxiety, things like that. I mean, exercise, that's what it is for me. Like I, I preach that more than anything. I mean, that's why I, I felt like I always get you right. Yeah, Cause I yeah. go to the, for me, the gym is not just to, yeah, I want to build the dream body or whatever. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're all working toward that every day. Right. Sure. But it's the mental health and it's the anxiety. Maybe you wake up and you're like, God, I got this going on. I got this project, this client meeting. And you go to the gym and you walk out and you're like, okay, I got this. I say to people, I do it for this. Yeah. And before I came up here today, I ran four and a half miles because I knew that I would be better right. had I run a few miles than not. Now, what's nice is, you know, I think I've had periods where I was like maybe a little bit more obsessive about it. It's, it's leveled out where... I do feel like it's important to have a healthy outlook on it, a healthy relationship with exercise and, and food and, you know, yeah. being careful not to go too far with like it being a constant, you know, have to do this, have to do that. And so I just, I feel like I'm in a really good place with it right now. Um, but yeah, I, the, the feeling that I get after a good workout and, you know, how I feel after a week of working out, but also taking care of my body, you know, sleep, nutrition, water. Um, it's like, you know, it, yeah, there's no comparison. And coming back to what you said, because you're involved in a lot of community stuff, and I know you have a big family and you're always out doing stuff in Northeastern mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. And you talked about how alcohol, for one, right, it's ingrained in everything, right? It's at the after events from a funeral, say the repass right yep it's at house parties restaurants so how does somebody who's been sober for years now since 2011 how do you navigate that when you're out because you're still out in the community you're still out with your friends you you're recently yep. married yep. how do you handle that when people are like hey you want to drink and they don't know your backstory because <clears throat> i'm sure a lot of people struggle with that right people feel the guilt like oh my gosh i better have a drink gotta be part of the party yeah yeah it's how funny. do you do it it's funny and interestingly <clears throat> you know we didn't get too far into um, the movement and the mocktail movement lately. But I would say that things like mocktails are actually very helpful for this sort of situation because um, there there's a level of discomfort there. Even like I haven't drank since 2010. I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin. 
um, being around it. But there's still that little, like, you know, I'm the guy that's not drinking. Can you right? be at a bar with friends yeah. and not have a drink? I can. Yeah. 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 It was just that one Friday night. And I noticed I saw multiple NA beers around me. Probably, like, more NA beers than I've seen. Um, In case people are like, what's that? Non-alcoholic Non-alcoholic beer. Yeah. 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 Um, so, like, I'm seeing anecdotally this these trends happening. Um, but... It is, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit uncomfortable. And when you first stop, you know, like when you're a couple months in, um, I didn't go, I didn't go out for probably eight months when I first got sober. Uh, I didn't go to any bars. Like I would go out to eat with sober people. I would hang out with sober friends. I felt very safe in that atmosphere, but I just wasn't ready to, and it's like, why put yourself through that if you're not ready to do it? But eventually, yeah, I'd say on some level, you know, you got to go to some weddings. Um, and trips are another big one, vacations, right? Like you go into an airport, this is where it could be 7 a.m. And, you know, people are drinking vodkas, people are drinking beers, martinis, whatever. So with traveling, there's like this sort of, uh, you know, almost like a Neverland type feel yeah. where um, alcohol is extremely glorified. Gosh, I've been there back in the day in my 20s, right? Oh, it's 7 a.m. Hey, oh, they're having drinks. Okay, right. why not? I'm yeah. on vacation. Exactly. Yeah. So traveling um, is one that could still be a little bit challenging. But, you know, it's like it's very the way the way that addiction was ingrained in me at one point, sobriety is ingrained in me at this point. Um, you know, you talk about things like the gym. You talk about things like anything kind of – negatively impacting your your ability to perform or just live or be at peace with yourself like I view it like I'm gonna feel the same tomorrow morning that I felt this morning when I woke up like I thrive on that consistency of just you know being rested having energy having clarity and so it's not as tempting for me as it once was to other people I would say always have an exit strategy you know, always be in control of your destiny, you know, have, have a car, you know, have, have a way to get out. Um, let somebody know, you know, don't, don't go into say a wedding. If you're on the fence and you haven't been drinking, like let people in your support group know, you know, whether they're sober or not sober people, but they know your story. Um, because I think that's so important what you hit on is the support you surround yourself with mm -hmm. is what's going to help lead to the success of your sobriety. Absolutely. So if you're still hanging out with the, quote, bad crowd. Sure. The old behaviors can continue. <clears throat> yeah. And there's yeah. and there's no there's no accountability there. You know, like when you talk about um, the glorification of alcohol, people miss when somebody leaves the circle and gets sober. You know, because like, what do we, you know, what's one of the things that's enjoyable about drinking is drinking with your friends, drinking with, you know, other people that like to drink. And so there's a real, um, it's interesting. There's, there's like a real loss that can happen um, where, you know, sometimes if someone's drinking, they may actually not want somebody else to stop or to even dial back, you know, because that impedes their time. The last thing I want to get to, how long, eight years now as a mental health therapist, right? Specializing yeah. in addiction. Yep. What's one of the best success success stories that just stays with you? And be 
and, and sort of comes back to that talk in your head saying, this is what I do, what I do. Not only because of your own recovery journey, but what's a story that stands out that you're like, wow. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. You know, there's so many. And I don't want to. Um, and are you seeing younger people coming into rehab and, and into I have. You know, therapy yeah. sessions? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, I'll see young adults uh, and, and some adolescents, but mostly uh, 18 and up. But, um, I mean, I. I had someone that I connected with very well uh, years ago. They came into one of the treatment centers I was working in. And, uh, I mean, they had a recent, there was a recent suicide of a loved one of theirs. Um, there was stuff going on with um, their children. They were unemployed. Uh, and they were, they were a heroin user. And this was somebody that, by all accounts, your first thought is no chance, you know, no chance that they're able to overcome the grief, the stress, you know, the, the lack of employment, these, these hoops that they have to jump through, you know, there may have been some legal stuff to handle too. And, uh, they did it, they did it. And they were an incredible person, um, still are, and, you know, very charismatic, um, did it with grace and it was just, you know, for all of, for all of the challenges and, you know, all of the sad stories that you see, um, it really is like, it's chilling when somebody turns it around. Um, and really, in a way, it's like, it's like everybody is a miracle in a way. Because if you're living a lifestyle where it gets to the point that, you know, you have to seek treatment to change this highly addictive behavior. Um, and if you can change that and, and walk away from it, you know, not go back, like, that's just, it's incredible. You know, because at, at, one, at one point in your mind, this was everything you thought about. This was all you cared about. So to be able to get away from that, it's just, you know, it deserves all the credit in the world. And before we wrap, are there any things... Anything you want people to know regarding the latest treatment with addiction, the help that's out there that is sort of more 2024 versus what you experienced in 2011 to help people get their lives back? It's a good question. It's a good question um, and a good point. I would say that it it is just so much more common now. It was always common, but what's different is people weren't talking about it. I don't think people were talking about mental health until the pandemic hit. Right. 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 And the importance exactly. of seeing somebody, getting help, maybe using some type of medication, sure. right, to help if it was sure. overwhelming anxiety, et cetera. But yeah. like you said, I think people are more in tune to it and people are talking about it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, stigma has been mentioned. There's there's even an internal stigma where it's it's hard to admit to yourself that, you know, you might benefit from help. You might, you know, need help. Um, but... It's, I mean, you, you do it and you get to that other side and you start to work through it and it's just, it, it can't be defined. It's just so worth it. You know, like the, that, that weight that people carry because they're afraid to say something because they're, you know, nervous about potentially being judged. Maybe they're afraid of losing something. Um, it's, 
it's just not worth it. You know, like life, life is so precious. Um, if you're thinking about asking for help, do it, you know, do it. Whether that's, you know, somebody that is, um, a friend or a family member that has experience, um, or even just jumping online, you know, getting on a, getting to the, um, help now number, you know, there are a lot of resources in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of resources in the country. Um, there's a lot of resources in Northeast Pennsylvania. And we'll particular. put some of those in the podcast description. Yes. Super absolutely. Stuff. Well, hey, it was, I mean, for somebody I've known you, as I mentioned before, a decade, right, through the gym circuit, to hear your story, to see where you were and how you leveled up to where you're going is, like, super incredible. Lucky, I appreciate it, buddy. Recently Thank married, you. like, living your life. And yep. as I said, every time I log on to my own social, I'm like, oh, my God, the guy ran another marathon for charity. Like, just <laughs> to see where you've been and where you're heading I think there's just so much ahead. So thanks. This was eye opening. Well, hey, and people like you were always an inspiration to me. You know, oh, I, thanks. I seriously, <laughs> I appreciate you know, it. Um, coming in and being at the gym and seeing the way that you went at life, seeing the way that you worked out, seeing what you've done for charity and the different events you've put on, um, and just the type, you know, you, and I think that's another thing you get a lot um, at the gym or working out or just being being amongst people that are hungry for more, yeah. you know, and that wears off on me. And so I appreciate you. Thank you. And if people are so inspired, which I know they will be hearing your story and they want to connect with you, I know you're on LinkedIn, but are you comfortable sharing where you work? Yeah, absolutely. Integrative Counseling Services. And um, and that's in? Scranton. Scranton, Pennsylvania. Downtown right. Scranton. Good stuff. All right, because you know sometimes people hear someone's story and they're like, I feel like that guy gets me. Look so. me up. All right. Pat McDonough. All right. Good stuff. Thanks so much, Pat. Really appreciate it. Eye-opening stuff. A lot of great resources we'll put in the uh, comment section, the summary of this podcast. And I really appreciate you for being an, a part of another episode of The Ryan Lanky Show. See you next time. Here we go, buddy.